Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you're wondering what happens when politics and technology link arms with the aim of convincing you of something, imagine walking down the street in the 1930s in Atlanta or Houston or Boston or New York or San Francisco or Cleveland on a summer's day when FDR was speaking on the radio and you never missed a word because every car would have its windows open and and every store would have speakers on. So you were just, just walking down the street, you could hear the entire fireside chat. Historian Joe Lepore says that Americans and our politicians have long believed that technology could be used in the service of politics. And the comparison is often, of course, made to Trump, who bypasses the press by going directly to the people by, by way of Twitter. Right. In some ways, in very differently, a thing that's really important to to distinguish there, is when FDR talked to the American people, really everybody listened. First of all, there's nothing else on the radio when FDR was on. There's no, like, you can't switch to another station. Uh, There's no opting in, like, you're going to have to follow Trump or whatever. Like, people that follow Trump on Twitter are people who are followers of Trump. But the people who listen to FDR were everyone. Let me make it clear to you that the banks will take care of all needs, except, of course, the hysterical demands of hoarders, And it is my belief that hoarding during the past week has become an exceedingly unfashionable pastime in every part of our nation. Roosevelt had contracted polio in his late 30s and had been paralyzed, and he was frequently in pain ever since. And he might have seemed like an unlikely weaponizer of technology, but that's what he was. He knew suffering, and there was a kind of softness. Uh, when he talked about other people's suffering, he, he sounded like someone who knew what he was talking about. Not in the sort of fakey, made-for-TV way of, a, say, Bill, Bill Clinton. There's something a little more genuine about I mean, and there is more. It is more genuine. I mean, he was a person who had suffered greatly in this very unexpected way. Hmm. So he uses radio to great effect and with great intimacy. It becomes quite threatening to his political opponents because he's president and because he's so good on the radio and he can by- bypass Congress and go to the people for a mandate. He's an incredibly effective president. He really enlarges the powers of the presidency. Lepore is the author, most recently, of These Truths, A History of the United States, and she's a professor of American history at Harvard University. She argues that as new technologies have arrived on the scene, politicians and their supporters have, of course, used them for their own ends. And they, and we, have often held to the belief that this new invention is the answer. This is going to fix things. This is going to bring people together. And it does, sometimes, until it doesn't. Lepore says, as we watch Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg get hauled before Congress and we worry about everyone living in their own bubble, stoked by Twitter and Fox News and MSNBC, she worries that the machinery of government is on fire. This is a story I would probably only, or a theory I would only float on your show, but if you think about the mad scientist across history, so the mad scientist moves from being uh, a chemist in the 19th century to a biologist in the beginning of the 20th century. Then the mad scientist is a physicist. And now the mad scientist is always a computer scientist, right? Like it's whatever thing we have thought was so great and going to save the world. And when we find out it's not going to save the world, then we start having ethical conversations. In some ways, though, our belief in the transformative power of new ideas to change politics, well, first, it isn't wrong. And second, it goes way back. The framers of the Constitution talked about the Constitution as a machine. They were they had a kind of notion of 
mechanical philosophy. This, this is one of the great insights of the Enlightenment, right? So you have Isaac Newton says, gravity, there's a law of gravity, and we can watch objects in the physical world. We can predict the way that they will move. We could build machines that could use that force, that force of gravity. Well, the framers of the Constitution believed, as Enlightenment philosophers did, that all human behavior could be reduced to these same kinds of laws, like the law of gravity. There'd be laws of nature, not laws of humans' behavior. And that they, if they could design a constitution kind of, you know, like a gold, Rube Goldberg machine, like building a better mousetrap, they could perfectly balance, you know, almost like a system of checks and balances in a physical world. If they could make such a system, such a machine in the political world, then it would go on and on and on indefinitely. So when the system didn't really seem to work, they often were seduced by the idea that technological fixes could make that little tinkered adjustment to the machine when it started to seem to have like a, a bit of a kink in it. And that was just the beginning of our belief that political problems could have technological solutions. New, cheaper newspaper presses could spread information to lots more people and create an informed public. But as you might know, information isn't always reliable. Newspapers can get tabloidy. Outlets can be partisan. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass thought in the mid-19th century that steamships and telegraphs would change everything because, quote, a revolution cannot be confined to the space or the people where it may commence, but flashes with lightning speed from heart to heart. And to be fair, he wasn't wrong about steamships and telegraphs. They absolutely change things. Douglas is is really kind of invoking Benjamin Franklin there. Franklin, when he was trying to explain like what the Enlightenment meant, he he kind of talked about lightning, like when lightning strikes and it illuminates everything. And this is it's this real uh, I don't know, just there's a kind of weakness in people that want to argue for the transformative power of technology to invoke the striking of of lightning. So. You know, Douglas had a broad faith in technology as progress, and then he had some specific forms of optimism, which which were around transportation and communication, but also representation. Douglas was a huge advocate of photography as the most democratic art. He thought that photography could help end slavery, but not just end slavery, but actually end racial discrimination, because if people could be depicted accurately and not in racist caricatures, no one could really believe the lie of racism anymore. If you could look at a photograph of a person and say, this is a person like I am a person, mm-hmm. you couldn't believe that people, other people were not human. And it's, it's just actually such a stirring belief to believe that that's what photography would do. And in some ways he's kind of right. I mean, it, but it's more right to say that when people see themselves in photographs, and their ancestors in photographs. So you have a you have a photograph of your grandmother all of a sudden. Then you can see your own worth in a way that really matters. But you can think about how the the, the correctness of that argument when you think about something like Black Lives Matter, right? Which is a social movement, a protest movement, but that has a very specific relationship to a technology of communication. In fact, a, a form of photography, which is live streaming, right? I mean, it really starts in the early 1990s with Rodney King whose beating was captured on a camcorder. And, you know, what what Frederick Douglass believed about photography, which would also involve photographing the institution of slavery, was that if you could lift it, like, the white people just couldn't see. They just couldn't see their way clear. They couldn't see that black people were human, and they couldn't see how evil slavery was because they didn't ever see it. Or, you know, white people in the North didn't see Mm -hmm. it. And if you could just lift that veil and people could see what people's lives were actually like... 
we would all treat one another better. And this injustice, this gross, just just horror, genocide would end. And that's what Black Lives Matter also believed, right? If we could just lift the bail, if we could just show, we have this footage of Tamir Rice, and it doesn't, like, then justice doesn't come. Right. right? Like, although, what, what happens know, in those trials? Like, that's, it's it's both. You know, although one of the first things I just, that popped into my mind when you were talking about Douglas and, like, that theory about photography being a breakthrough technology is that uh, very famous photograph of the girl running down the street naked in Vietnam because the area had been napalmed. And in some ways, photography does bring, like, was a technology that brought uh, realities to people who are nowhere near those realities. Sure. And you, did, right. could and change perception. We could perception. make a long list, yeah. and, like, your listeners could call in with a long list, sure. and it would be really thrilling to make. I mean, you right. think about... The Farm Security Administration photography of Dorothy Lange. Right, I mean, we can make a long, long list. Sure. But on the other hand, you know, you could point to the postcards of lynchings that were souvenirs, right? That's where our faith in technological change is always misplaced because people make these technologies and they use them the way they want to as people. With They bring to them their beliefs. And that's why the technological fix to broken politics will just only ever be a temporary patch. Um, So let's go back to another technology, uh, radio, for a minute, because that, too, was seen as a political tool that could maybe knit the country together. Um, In the early part of the 20th century, radio was really popular, uh, and President Herbert Hoover believed in its power. How effective was it? Radio was extremely effective as a political tool, actually in preserving American democracy, chiefly because of Hoover's reforms. Hoover was an engineer, and he, before he became president, was Secretary of Commerce, which he liked to describe as a position better referred to as undersecretary of everything because he just decided (laughs) he was in charge of everything. And one of the things he was in charge of as an engineer is he just thought, you know, this medium is really important, uh, but the federal government needs to have a role. We should treat this like a utility. We need to have regulations. We need to have equal airtime for different political positions. We need to use it to foster political debate. This could become a tool of tyrants uh, or it could just be consumer crap. So the Federal Radio Act of 1927 is the last great act of the progressive era, and it is the forerunner of what becomes the FCC. Uh, And much that is good in American broadcasting, we should thank Herbert Hoover for. Much that is bad on the Internet, we should blame the people who revised Hmm. the FCC with the 1996 Telecommunications Act. But uh, Hoover himself was actually terrible on the radio. He just, he if you listen to him, it's, you just sort of, you feel sad for the guy. Like, I actually really quite like Hoover. I think he's a really, is a, was a really interesting and often misunderstood heroic American and uh, hardworking Republican public servant. But yeah, he was terrible on the radio and he tried to use it and he just, just, just was, it was a disaster. And he didn't really see its particular promise. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to historian Jill Lepore, a professor at Harvard and staff writer for The New Yorker. And we're looking at the long, long intertwining of tech and politics. Um, so let's talk a little bit about a term that we throw around all the time now, uh, fake news. Uh, in the late 1930s, the Nazis were using radio for largely that purpose to put out fake news. And along comes Orson Welles, um, and he creates this radio drama from the novel The War of the Worlds, and um, he broadcasts it in 1938, right as kind of conflicts in Europe are intensifying. And we're going to play a little clip from it. Uh, The idea behind the whole thing is that it's a report, a fake report, obviously, on a Martian invasion of America. And this is a part about the takeover of New York City. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke. 
drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. What does um, sort of this broadcast and the kind of rise of concern about fake news in the 1930s tell you about what was happening to this technology, to radio at that time? Yeah. So, you know, the debate over whether what you read in the newspaper is true or not or what you hear on the radio or watch on television or read in the Internet, like that's an evergreen, right? From the very start of newspapers, there are fights about whether your newspaper is full of lies. No, your newspaper is full of lies. Uh, so there's a lot of that just kind of partisan squabbling. The, something closer to uh, an epistemic crisis really begins with radio. Because although it's regulated in the United States, that's not true elsewhere. And when you think about the nature of the technology, it is itself a form of invasion. Like people who are listening to me right now, like maybe you have your earbuds in and it's like I'm in your head. It's like I am trying to get inside of behind your eyeballs. And before the people, early radio, you had to have headsets on. You didn't just listen to the speaker. So people would gather in their kitchen and they'd all put on their headsets and listen. And it was like in your kitchen, it had invaded your home. Uh, The concern that early social scientists had, because all the social science research and radio early on was that it would it would be a tool for propaganda. It, it, <laughs> how could it not be, right? It could, you, there was no answer back. There was no page-by-page comparison, like different op-eds competing. Like it was just someone was in your head telling you something. And so in the United States, there are all these really quite ingenious efforts to counter that almost inherently propagandistic nature of the technology with format. America's town meeting of the air. Where... There was just a debate every week. <laughs> it was a live debate uh, before a live audience, and people would shout out questions after the debate took place. And then you were supposed to listen to it and then with your friends afterwards have your own debate. So, like, should the United States have compulsory national health insurance? It was a debate debated in the 1930s on the hmm. radio. And you were supposed to have, like, a party at your local library and listen to it. <laughs> and, like, that, it was a way to sort of say, like, don't just listen, don't believe everything you hear on the radio. Partly because... Once Hitler came to power, he appointed Joseph Goebbels as minister of propaganda. And basically from his desk, Goebbels could t- to broadcast to every German household. And not only that, I mean, this is a way to institute the, the, the fascist power of the state. That is what fascism is. Like the state tells the people what to believe. But... There was a propaganda campaign of long-range radio broadcasting into North and South America, and a lot of Americans listened to what they thought was radio from Europe but was Nazi radio and was just what was called at the time fake news because it was just broadcasts about, oh, well, the French have finally given in. I mean, it was just lies about stuff that had happened, but it was all about uh, an alleged Jewish world conspiracy. And uh, so the fascism in the United States that arose was hitched to that fake news that was being broadcast out of Germany. Wells, when he decided to do War of the Worlds, he later, you know, would say, he was trying to propose to sort of essentially vaccinate, to inoculate the American 
radio listener against fake news. So we're going to leave it right there with that uh, fake news sentiment for a moment. And we're going to come back and talk more with Harvard historian Jill Lepore about the Internet and how that has combined technology and politics. Um, And if you want to hear actual episodes of the 1930s radio debate program that we just talked about, we've got the link for you at innovationhub.org. You can hear debates about Social Security and whether machines will come to dominate men. We will get back to the show in just a second. But in the meantime, we'd love it if you could take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people find their way to the show. And I read all the reviews myself. So if you love a particular kind of segment and you want me to know about it, go for it. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, continuing my conversation with Harvard historian Jill Lepore. And we're talking about how a bunch of technologies have been seen as great boons for politics until they turned out to have more downsides than maybe people anticipated. And actually, some drafters of the Constitution thought of that document as a machine, one that was designed to create the optimal political system. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass had great hopes for the equalizing power of photography and steamships and the telegraph. And President Herbert Hoover thought radio was going to be amazing. My fellow citizens, this broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who, through no fault of their own, face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. Except Hoover knew regulation of the airways would be key. And as radio and then TV spread across the country, networks were often restricted from embracing too much partisan political speech. But more than 50 years after Hoover gave that radio address that you heard, the term of another president, Ronald Reagan, brought the repeal of something called the Fairness Doctrine. And media outlets suddenly became freer to say what they thought. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thank you for watching on our very first day. How did it happen? How did television news become so predictable and in some cases so boring? Well, there are That was the debut of Fox News in 1996, less than a decade after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed. And as Fox and then MSNBC turned into technologies that were married to politics, another technology was quietly rising, the Internet. Its seeds had been planted by a part of the Defense Department called the Advanced Research Projects Agency. So it was called ARPANET. But Lepore, the author of These Truths, A History of the United States, says many of the folks who were influential in those early days of the web's commercial development, they were people who chafed at the notion of any sort of governmental control. You know, no one could anticipate what has happened with the Internet. There's a whole lot of bits and pieces that go in to what we now call the Internet, which is what we mean includes the web and includes social media and includes right. access on our smartphones. I mean, even what the Internet means is like a much broad and sort of messy set of things rather than one thing, then they all have quite long origins. But in terms of a specific thing, which is opening the Internet to commercial traffic, and then anybody can get an email address and can can, can browse what comes to be called the web, and how is that How is that going to work? The people who had been planning for that, the, that specific piece of what we mean when we say the Internet, 
were some of them were anarchists or former anarchists, and but most of them were libertarians, and a lot of them were affiliated loosely with a think tank uh, with which Newt Gingrich was affiliated, called the, I think the Progress and Freedom Foundation. What a lot of these people imagined was that this new space for communication would be a new political frontier that could finally realize the long-held conservative hope of essentially repealing the New Deal, creating a political space that was entirely unregulated, that was wholly market-driven. That's one of the big claims of like a Fox News, right? The reason Fox News, conservatives who went on to found Fox News wanted to repeal a fairness doctrine, they thought that ratings should decide what's on the news, Mm -hmm. not some government agency. So... They're libertarians who believe in the market, and they don't believe in government regulation. A lot of them had come out of the Reagan administration or had come into power through the Reagan revolution, someone like Gingrich, and they were thrilled to have this new terrain. It was like inventing a new universe where none of the old stuff that they objected to and were having a hard time dismantling existed, and they were damned if they were going to see it put there. And so... They, you know, write this Magna Carta that's about freedom, and they write all these manifestos, a Declaration of Independence for Cyberspace, in which they say governments of the world do not belong here. This is a space free from government. And some of this, you know, as has been really carefully traced in a wonderful book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, the stuff that comes from Stuart Brand, a lot of these people were hippies in the 1960s, and then they became libertarians. A lot of hippies moved in that direction. It's not that far to imagine going. And for them, it's a kind of kumbaya space. For the libertarians, it's it's a space where commerce can be free. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what they get. And we live in what that looks like. So I think one of the things that people tend to believe now, and not wrongly necessarily, is that we're awash in news coverage, you know, all news uh, TV networks, news on the Internet. Um, And you've written that despite that, we perhaps do not seem to be paying attention um, to what all this technology all around us is doing, Um, at least not in the way that we should and maybe not even in the way that previous generations have uh, with the inventions around them. I think that's true. And I think also it's important to remember that our political community is a quite a different one. So I it's just this this seems pedantic and I'm a professor, so I'm a pen, so it comes kind of come across this way. But I do think it's an important reminder because people ask me all the time, has it ever been this bad? And like it the it sort of changes. Like sometimes the it is, you know, we're in these filter bubbles, or sometimes the it is you know, we're so polarized, or sometimes the it is, you know, in two thousand eight it was like is the economy crash has crashed so fast so right. before. Um, the it always changes, but the but the we seems to be just a pure fiction. So if you can even ask that question, has it ever even been this bad before? Have our political arrangements ever been so out of whack? Yeah, like always up until, say, <laughs> the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Like there is not a day before emancipation in 1863 that isn't a worse day than any day after emancipation. There's not a day during Jim Crow and segregation and the reign of lynching and the reign of terror against African-Americans that's not 
a worse day than what comes after that era. Uh, women don't have the right to vote until 1920. African Americans are not guaranteed uh, free and full access to elections until 1965. Our voting rights are very much in question even today. When we talk about the challenges to the political community in the United States and what holds us together, these questions that you were raising, the we is much bigger. I mean, we've really only been a sort of fully enfranchised population where women and people of color can participate politically you know, for a couple generations. And those generations have been marked by a lot of political instability. Those are, the, you know, this is the era from, you know, beginning with Vietnam and Watergate down to the Tea Party and Trump. And there has been, you know, there's a lot of economic growth, but there's widening economic and income inequality. So, yes, this is rough. <laughs> this is rough. But we are all in it. So then if we take kind of a final snapshot of where our politics stand right now against this historic backdrop um, and in terms of the current technology that underpins what we've got going on, um, and that technology could be campaigns knowing everything about us or, as we talked about at the beginning, like Trump taking his case right to Twitter. Um, How do you think about where we're headed? Uh, I mean, you certainly have written with um, some pretty deep concern and alarm about – the role of technology in politics right now. So I, I, to celebrate the end of 2018, I read a book called Toward the Year 2018 that was written in 1968 that was so fun because it's just like, all right, being a historian is no fair. Like you can't like, of course, everybody's prediction was wrong. Like it's like bad <laughs> manners even to point that out. Like we're all going to be wrong. Every, you know, that's why I punditry drives me. And it's like the next day, all these people are proven to be wrong and they still have their jobs. Like, I don't even understand how that's possible. But I, what do I know? I don't know. You know, like I couldn't have designed the Internet differently. It's I'm a historian. I have the privilege of sitting here and saying, God, that was crazy. Look at that. It has had all these terrible consequences. So like at first, just like a pause for just like a moment of solemn humility. But reading this book, toward the year 2018 was really instructive because uh, a guy I happened to be studying, Ithiel de Solapool, who was a political scientist at MIT, uh, who was a scholar of mass communications and an early advocate of ARPANET and wrote some very prescient stuff about email and privacy in the 1970s. He, in 1968, asked to write about the future of social science, essentially, wrote this quite chilling thing in which he said, look, by 2018... There will be devices that connect us all to one another that can gather information about you, even without your acknowledgement, or even without, can gather information about you, even without your knowledge, and maybe against your will. And also, a lot of information will just be gathered passively. Like, for instance, if you're driving down a street and you stop at a traffic light, the traffic light would actually count your car and maybe notice that there aren't other cars coming. And so, just stay red for longer or, you know, there's just going to be extraordinary quantities of data because get this, he says in 1968, by 2018, it'll be cheaper to store information on a computer than on paper. And it'll be very easy to gather. And he he writes this like, just, it's just like hair, you know, the hair in the back of your net rises when he's like, in 2018, I could sit at my desk at a computer that is connected to all the other computers in the world. And I could look you up and I could find out that you have a low IQ and that you're unemployed and that your mother is on welfare. And I could decide not to give you a job because I think you're a bad risk and, I, and I'm not going to give you credit. And you wouldn't have had to even give me any information. I can decide without even meeting you. I can decide without even hearing your story. And Poole says, and I think, you know, very fair-mindedly, we're going to be able to do that in 2018. The question is, should we be able to do that? 
And it's like, like, drop yeah. mic. Like, it's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, they knew. They knew. Yeah. You know, someone who was very involved in uh, thinking about the politics of technology can actually anticipate, right? Like, so the sense that we have now, I think, that, oh, well, Facebook, I mean, you know, so they were young and they didn't think about Facebook newsfeed and they didn't think that trending topics would be a problem and, you know, they got distracted by Nipplegate or whatever excuses you want to make for the Facebook people. Actually, no. I mean, they could have read a book written in 1968 and seen this coming. Like, that's like it's, read a book. (laughs) Jill Lepore is a professor of American history at Harvard. She's the author of These Truths, A History of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find more information about ARPANET, the predecessor to the modern-day Internet, which was funded by the government, at our website, innovationhub.org. And we'll also have more details there about that book that Lepore mentioned, which in 1968 tried to predict the future. It's called Toward the Year 2018.